0: Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nita Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. Today, we're here with Amy Gershkoff-Bulls. She's a founder and CEO, a senior strategy and operations executive, and a public company board member. She shares her insights with us regarding how and why you should hire for potential, not for experience, why strategy and operations have to go together and how to execute a turnaround in less than a year, twice. Thanks for joining us. We are here today with Amy Grishkoff-Bowles. She's a founder, a former CEO and a public company board member. Welcome Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's jump right in. I would love it if you would tell our audience a little bit about how you got to where you are today, because you have such a fascinating career and a really interesting set of experiences. And maybe also tell us what you're most proud of in that career. To date, I should say. I'm sure there's more to come. <laughs> well, thank you.
1: Well, I I feel very, very privileged um, because I've had a, a really exciting career so far and, and I'm also excited for what's to come. So I've been founder and CEO of my own startup. Um, I've also uh, led another growth stage company uh, through to a successful exit. I've gotten the opportunity um, to have executive roles at larger public companies like eBay, Zynga, WPP, and Levi Strauss. And then I've had the opportunity to serve as a board member or board advisor to startups, uh, very in some cases, very early stage startups, growth stage companies, as well as public companies. And so I've gotten to sort of help founders and CEOs at sort of every stage of that journey. And I would say what I've most enjoyed and am most proud of so far is, are really the teams that I have built. I have gotten the opportunity to create really amazing teams at in all all of these roles, uh, whether as an operating executive or to refer candidates uh, to companies that I was advising or serving on the board of. And what's been really exciting is to see these teams come together and be able to deliver really exciting results, but then also to see where all of these people have gone since, and to see that them go on to lead these really exciting, high-profile roles at, at really exciting companies. And the teams that I've built, I've I've always been a big believer in hiring for potential, not experience. And so what that's meant is I've hired a lot of people, you know, I've probably over the course of my career, um, if you look across all of the teams that I've led, I've I've hired now thousands of people at different companies, if you add it all together. And I've hired a number of people who, didn't have the sort of traditional on-paper experience that you would expect for the role to which they applied. I've hired many people who never finished college. I've hired several who never finished high school. I've hired people with resume gaps. I've hired people who were switching careers or switching industries, and so they didn't have the typical industry experience, or they didn't have the typical functional experience that you'd expect. And what that's done is enable me to find people who, what they may have lacked in, in on paper in some more traditional ways, they've more than made up for in creativity and intellectual curiosity and grit and perseverance. And in willingness to work as a team player and in willingness to problem solve when things get tough. And so I've really enjoyed putting together teams of people who may not um, have seemed like the the obvious choice for any given role, but have ended up wildly exceeding expectations and performance once they arrived because of all these other gifts that they brought to the table that maybe don't shine through in a resume, but really shine through in an interview and absolutely shine through when they're given a chance on the job to deliver value for the organization. So that's what I'm most proud of are the teams that I've built.
0: I think that's an amazing philosophy. I really like that because I do think you're right, both resumes and maybe a more traditional mindset on career progression. I think it prevents both organizations and potential employees or team members from really excelling. And I think it's amazing that you have the vision to see beyond that. So kudos.
1: Well, thank you. I think, you know, one of the benefits of this mindset is that it also leads to teams that are much more diverse. Uh, Many uh, women, many underrepresented minorities, people from other countries, they might not have had the same sort of traditional opportunities as someone applying for the the role with a more traditional resume. And so I think if you're willing to be open-minded about the skills someone can bring to the role, instead of just the boxes that they check on a piece of paper, you can end up with a team that's much more diverse, not only in terms of race and gender and background, but also more broadly in terms of way of thinking, education Country of origin, all of those things create teams that think more creatively about how to solve problems for a more diverse set of customers, which is, of course, the ultimate goal for any business, right, is to put together a team that's going to really creatively solve problems and enable customer delight um,
0: as a result. I think that focus on diversity of perspective and experience is super valuable. And I'm curious to know how do you bring that mindset into running a company and kind of the operation size of a house? Because there's there's obviously a lot of work there in, you know, efficiency, you're trying to drive effectiveness. How do you think about that? Really, strategy and operations kind of go hand in hand,
1: right? So strategy is where are we heading? It's the big vision. It's what gets people excited and out of bed in the morning and really thrilled to to work on hard and interesting problems. But that has to be balanced with a very data-driven, very metrics focused approach to measuring progress. And that approach has to be not only ROI driven, but also milestone focused. And that's really critical in terms of making sure that you're not, as the old expression goes, throwing good money after bad. If there's an initiative that's not working, you need to have the systems in place to be able to say, look, we have for several quarters measured progress. The return is not there. It's time to call it and to really pull back from investing in this initiative. And at the same time, you want to be able to track initiatives that are ahead of progress that seem to be going especially well and be able to ask the question, what would happen if we increased investment in this area? And the only way you're going to be able to set that up is to have a very strong operational backbone that's enabling that data-driven measurements and that's doing it in a way that's in complete synergy and concert with your strategy. Now, all that said, I've seen some companies take this too far. Not every initiative has an easy to calculate ROI component. And so if you think about something like cybersecurity and a cybersecurity initiative to protect customer data to prevent a data breach, how do you measure ROI on that? There are some some metrics and models you can use, but at the end of the day, what you're doing is protecting your customer and protecting your business from a possible risk. And that is not something that fits as neatly into an ROI calculation, for example, as spending on performance, digital performance marketing, right? That has a much easier to calculate ROI component. Another example could be investing in employee health and well-being. Extremely important, There are financial models you can use to calculate the positive impact that will have on your business. But again, it's a little bit less crisp compared to the models we can use for performance marketing. So I always encourage companies to think about forming a very strong and solid operational backbone, but to understand that there are certain initiatives And I've given two examples, but there are lots and lots of others I'm sure that are coming to mind for the folks who are listening to this. There are many initiatives that don't necessarily lend themselves to that kind of ROI calculation. And you need to be thoughtful strategically. And this is why strategy and operations have to work hand in hand. You need to be thoughtful strategically about how to allocate resources to these critically
0: important initiatives that may not fit as cleanly into an ROI framework. How do you think about this in the context of balancing initiatives? Because what I hear in this is also the challenge, which every organization feels or or is um, struggling with, at least in my experience, between the long-term and the short-term. The easy answer is balance. I think the harder answer is, what does that look like practically? How do you think about that? Are there some best practices that you keep in mind in trying to do both those things? That's a great question. And one of the
1: tactical uh, strategies that I have employed is as you head into, for example, annual planning, typically in deciding what initiatives you're going to prioritize as a management team for the coming year, every company has some flavor of the following exercise where people who are leaders within each functional area will submit a proposal that uh, highlights the upside that they believe their team can deliver, as well as the expected cost that they believe will be incurred. And so when you look across the whole organization, if you simply add up all of that upside, uh, you'll find typically. Um, if people are optimistic and enthusiastic, which hopefully your leaders are, you'll find a uh, list of uh, initiatives that's far too long to possibly be tackled, as well as a list of initiatives that um, added all together <laughs> um, uh, produce an upside that is logistically impossible, right? With a cost that's also usually financially impossible. And so the question is how do you balance and create that portfolio? So what I've encouraged my leaders to do when we've gone through this exercise is some flavor of not only submitting the upside and the cost, but also the timeline uh, and the level of certainty or the level of risk, depending on the type of initiative, of hitting that deadline with that level of upside. So I'll give you an example if you're talking about a a product like an app, any app, you could look at a series of possible features to put on a product roadmap for the forthcoming year. Each of those features has an associated expected upside, but the question is how certain that expected upside is to occur. So some might be features that have been very well researched, perhaps UX tested Perhaps tested in another version of the app, you've gotten live customer feedback, or maybe a competitor has launched a similar feature and talked publicly about the lift that it's had. All of that might give you a much uh, more confident answer to the question of how much upside to expect from that feature versus a feature that's very experimental which could yield a lot of upside or may yield no upside at all, or worse yet, there are sometimes you launch a feature in an app, it might actually decrease revenue or whatever the metric is that you're looking at. And that can't be known before it's launched. So as I think about balancing from a portfolio standpoint, I'm always looking at three vectors. So one is the one that you mentioned, short-term versus long-term in terms of benefit. The second vector I'm looking at is the risk associated with the potential upside. And uh, the third is looking holistically at the total balance that I have of risk return against a timeline. So I'm trying to balance short term and long term upside and within those buckets having some higher risk initiatives and some lower risk initiatives, and calibrate that risk to where your organization is in terms of cash flow, in terms of stage, in terms of the risk appetite of your investors or your board. All of those things matter in terms of calibrating which initiatives to move forward. So I think it's not just short term versus long term, it's against a
0: certainty or level of risk profile for hitting those metrics in the first place. That tension between the vision and ambition of founders and the practicality of we're in business, we're trying to hopefully get to a you know successful, sustainable, profitable business model at some point in time. I think you know we've both seen that in in a lot of companies. This was a a challenge that I think has been deferred because the past decade funding has been so prolific in both the private markets and public markets. So how does that risk calculus um, change, or how are you thinking about that in a world where? Um, it's not just belt tightening, but it is rethinking what are we doing and how can this business be successful?
1: I think that companies that have to think simultaneously about growth and profitability are often much more creative about how they go about things. They think about ways to you know, pull that proverbial rabbit out of a hat in a difficult situation, and that's why I've always tried to prioritize hiring people that are creative thinkers and problem solvers and don't walk off the field when things get, you know, very tough because it, it enables you to put together a team of people that will think about an out-of-the-box solution when you're faced
0: with a more difficult challenge. And strengths. Constraints drive excellence. Exactly. Well, switching gears because again, I think it's really amazing that you have this early stage experience as well as public company experience. In the larger organizations you've been in, you have executed two significant turnarounds, both on a very short timetable, and I think that's a huge accomplishment unto itself because that's a, you know, it's, a, it's challenging, it's a tumultuous time for employees, for investors, other stakeholders. How did you do that? What was that experience like? Yeah, so
1: I in both cases, I sort of deployed uh, three pillars uh, to executing the turnaround that I think enabled us to be successful and enabled us to do it on a short timeline. And so the first pillar, which is really the kind of most foundational and important piece, is really around talent. So in both cases where I was leading a turnaround, I came in and I had to very quickly look at the team we had and ask a couple of questions. Is this, for each role on the team, is this the right person in that role? Is this the right person, but perhaps they should be in a different role? I think people don't ask that question often enough. Uh, Typically when a new leader is brought in and they're doing talent assessments, what they're trying, the question they're asking is, should this person stay or go? But the question I ask is, In addition to should this person stay or go, if they should stay, is there a different way for us to unlock more value from this person and for them in turn to unlock more value from us? In every team that I've been brought in to lead where I found a person who was not delivering sufficient value for the company, it was also a person who was feeling unfulfilled in their role in some way. Maybe it wasn't the right role for them. Maybe they were a people manager when they would have preferred to be an individual contributor or perhaps the reverse. There are all sorts of reasons why you can have a stellar team member who will under deliver in the wrong role. So I'm also looking for, is this the right person in the wrong role? And then most importantly, I'm looking at the team overall. A team is not just a collection of human beings who work together. When it's really a team that's delivering value, a team is a force to be reckoned with. It's its own being, really. Um, And it's people coming together where one plus one equals 17 and where you're really creating an environment where people are able to deliver far more because they are together and because they are working efficiently, and effectively, and collaboratively together. So in addition to looking at each individual, I'm also looking at the team composition. Did we? Are there any skill sets we're missing? Maybe we have a lot of big picture thinkers, and we don't have enough attention to detail. Do we have a lot of people who have deep technical skills, but they're all the same type of technical skills? They're all computer scientists, or they're all mathematicians. Or that we have experts in marketing, but not communications, which is not the same skill set. even though they're often put together at an early stage startup, as you grow, you actually need different people in those roles. So I'm looking at the team overall and I'm looking at each person on the team. And so once those assessments are done, figuring out if we need to make a few key personnel changes or move people into different roles to really create the right team. And then with the right team, everything is possible. And with the wrong team, of course, everything is harder and some things are actually impossible. So if you have the right team, the rest of the turnarounds is going to be possible. There are many right answers to a strategy that will lead to a successful turnaround. But what they all have in common is everyone on the management team needs to believe in it. If you have anyone who is a little bit lukewarm or worse yet, feels that it's not going to work, then that will end up being the result. So you have to have a strategy that everyone believes in. And there are lots of ways to create that strategy together, but you have to emerge from that exercise 100% aligned at the management team level and be able to communicate that to the rest of the organization. And then operationally, I think one of the most key factors in the strategy and then the operations piece is being really, really clear on what you need to do to reach the financial outcome you're trying to achieve. So in any turnaround, there's usually a set of financial goals that you're trying to reach, whether it's a particular revenue and mix or a particular exit that you're looking to hit, whatever that is, you want to be really clear on what are the three to five things we need to do to get there and everything else has to go on a list of no or not right now. And those lists, if this exercise is done right, should be really long lists of great ideas that can't be executed or
0: you won't meet your turnaround goals. How long do you think a turnaround should take based on your experience? And I get that the answer is probably it depends. And there are lots of factors, obviously, that go into it. But based on what you've seen so far and maybe a little bit around the current market environment, what would you say?
1: There's a perception that turnarounds take longer than they, than they really need to because usually quite a long part of the process is assessing talent. And when I've come in to lead teams, I often, whether it's a turnaround situation or not, will meet with every single person in my organization, even if that's hundreds of people. The meetings might not be very long, but I will at least take time to meet face-to-face whenever possible, or at least over Zoom or Teams with every single person in the organization. And I've now done this thousands of times, and I have yet to ever emerge from one of those meetings without a very clear sense in the first five minutes about whether this person is enjoying their job or not. And if they're not enjoying their job, I can tell you they're never going to deliver the kinds of value for the organization that will enable you to execute a turnaround. So then it becomes a question about why are they not enjoying their job? Is there a way to create a role for them they will enjoy or are they a mismatch for the size and stage and timing and role that the organization needs? But people who love what they do and love the team they're working with, anything is possible. And so if you get the team right, you can execute a turnaround very quickly. I've now now executed two turnarounds, both of them in 12 months or less. And in both cases, it was because we got the right team. Nobody ever does anything interesting at the office by themselves it takes an entire team and if you get the team right everything is possible and it's possible quickly without a lot of capital in most cases what sets great leaders apart that's a great question i think one of the things that sets great leaders apart perhaps not the only one but one is that they think of the people on their team as human beings first and employees second and That might sound sort of basic or perhaps obvious, but I actually think most people don't do this. I've been in many companies where I've sat in meetings, including with people from human resources who refer to people on my team and on other teams as resources, which is a dehumanizing term. Every single one of us is not only an employee, we're a person. We're a, we're a human being with a story. We're on a journey. We have certain personal and professional aspirations and goals. And the, the job of a great leader is to align people's personal, professional ambitions with the needs of the organization. Because if you can do that, then you've unlocked this opportunity for the person to deliver the best work of their career, to be the best version of themselves in that role. And that is always going to deliver the most value to the organization. But I think what people so often miss, especially in larger companies where you're running larger teams, it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking about each person as a row on a spreadsheet or on a payroll ledger. But they're not, they're human beings. And I think that also goes back to thinking about the team as a whole, thinking about the skill set each person brings, how they're going to work together. If you put together the right team, everything is possible. And so I think great leaders think about their teams as people and they think about the ways that they can unleash the potential of those people and that ends up generating the kind of results that look great on those financial
0: spreadsheets i think empathy has been underrated in many contexts i think that's part of what what i'm hearing there well i think too there has
1: been some discussion in the you know in the literature and and in the public sphere about empathetic leadership and is that at odds with delivering results? And I would say a resounding no. In fact, I would say that empathetic leadership is a prerequisite to delivering results. Because if you don't have a team that really feels appreciated, that feels that you've heard them and listened, and that you've acted in a way that is respectful and empathetic, they're never going to give the 250% they need to give to execute against your ambitious goals for the organization or ambitious financial metrics that you're trying to hit.
0: Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. What is, in your view, the most pressing problem right now, basically for the tech industry, but you know, business in general, because I think tech obviously leads a lot of other sectors, I think, in many ways and how do you think we should solve it? So I think one of the biggest challenges facing the tech
1: industry in particular is we still have a significant challenge as an industry with representation. The research at this point is very clear. Companies with diverse management teams and diverse boards of directors perform better. There's lots and lots of research about this. So it's by now very clear that this is the case. And yet some of the research that was most recently published shows that women today occupy only 15% of C-suite roles in the S&P 500. I believe women today are now 9% of CEOs which means that in the last year, I believe, uh, according to some research by Harvard and the New York Times, only recently surpassed, uh, women CEOs only recently surpassed the number of public company CEOs named John, which is, to me, very troubling that we have only now in 2023 uh, passed that milestone. And then if you look at board members globally of public companies Less than 20% of them globally are occupied by women. And if you look at all those statistics for women of color, all of those numbers are even more troubling. And so what this shows is that despite the fact that this research is now more than a decade old, showing the impact of diverse management teams and diverse boardrooms on financial outcomes we still have a very long way to go in bridging that gap and in making management teams and boardrooms more representative. And so I think this is obviously an industry-wide and very challenging problem. There are lots of wonderful organizations that are working to address this problem to try to increase the diversity of slates of candidates for executive and board roles not only at the S&P 500 level, but also for private companies and even for startups, as well as for investors. So there are a lot of organizations working on this at different levels. I think companies like Goldman Sachs that in 2021 said they would not take a company public without at least one diverse board director. And in 2022, they increased that to two diverse board directors, and then they formed a program to connect companies that were considering going public with diverse candidates. So it was not only the strategy, they put operational backbone and investment and resources behind it. I think we need more leadership like that in tech, where people are marrying strategy with operational backbone and investment so that it's not just something that a company will say or an industry expert will say is nice to have, but we actually start having some operational plans that facilitate
0: that increase in diversity because it's so, so, so important. We've really come full circle in this because I think that your take on diversity, even from earlier in the conversation of experience and perspective married with representation is really where there's so much power in diversity. Why do you think it has taken so long? And you know at this and as I say that we have made progress, things are obviously better than they were for our our mothers or our grandmothers. And yet sometimes that progress feels slow in coming. Do you have any thoughts on what else might be going on there or what else could accelerate that process? I think fundamentally one of the biggest challenges
1: is that when faced with an opening for an executive role or a board role, or frankly, any role in an organization, what many people do is reach out to their network. And so if the people at the table currently are not very diverse or not nearly as diverse as would be advisable and ideal, the, their networks are likely to look like them. And so if you have executive teams and boardrooms that are overrepresented with men, for example, their networks will tend to be overpopulated with men. And so it continues to perpetuate the challenges with creating diverse executive teams and boardrooms. This is also why I come back to, as we talked about at the beginning, hiring for potential, not experience. Many uh, boardrooms, when they're looking for an additional independent board member, will seek someone who's already been a board member. That all automatically means they're looking at a pool of candidates that are less diverse because of the statistics I just mentioned where boardroom diversity still has such a long way to go, both in terms of racial and gender representation. And so opening the aperture up to consider candidates who perhaps have not previously served on a board But have the requisite skill set to do so and to add significant value to the board is another way to continue to increase diversity. So I think fundamentally, we all have to step outside of our own networks to be thoughtful about the people that we're recommending for roles at any level, frankly, not just the executive level. And we also have to be really thoughtful about making sure that we're creating systems to do that at scale. Uh, So if there's no one in your network who's the right fit, um, or we want to expand beyond our personal networks, how do we create systems to do that? Such
0: an important point. Thank you for sharing that. What do high performance companies do differently from the rest of the pack? And the the related piece to that is, you know, what are the learnings from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that high performing companies do is they think about talent differently. And we've sort of talked about this in terms of hiring for potential, not experience, looking at the skill set, being open to people whose background may not seem like a fit on paper. So I think they're bringing together the right talent. But I think then, next, when it comes to strategy, right? They're very clear about what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. And then they communicate that transparently to the organization. This is an area that I think a lot of companies really struggle with is making those decisions about what to do next year and what to say we can't do next year. We don't have resources. We don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited capital. We had to make some choices and being really clear about that. And driving that alignment, not just across the management team, but all the way down in the organization. So employees, even the newest, most junior employee understands why are we doing X and not Y? Why are we doing A next year, but not B, C, and D? How did we arrive at these decisions? There has to be a really thoughtful plan for how to involve the company appropriately in the decision-making process and then how to communicate the results. And then on the operations side, so again, I always come back to talent, strategy, and operations. On the operations side, there have to be systems to monitor progress that don't move the goalpost, right? If you have an initiative and you were supposed to hit X dollars of revenue by Y date, and we're now way past Y date and the dollars of revenue are way below X, then there has to be a transparent Accountable conversation about that. And it should be done politely and respectfully, but it has to happen. And I think a mistake a lot of organizations make, especially if a leader is very invested in a specific initiative, is they move the goalpost to align with the outcome instead of being honest about where the goalpost is. And I believe this is something where the folks on the management team and the CEO
0: really have to lead by example. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you for being so generous with your advice. I think, again, with all of your experience from CEO to board member to founder, it's just, it's very rich. And I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a news show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.